Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 15, where we begin a four-episode arc on ethics and morality, starting today, but before that, like always, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? I'm doing great. The summer is is over. It's done. It's dead. <laughs> putting it, putting it in the ground and plying the headstone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that uh, that's that's far too dramatic. Teachers report back tomorrow, as as of this recording, which is uh, well, this is August first when we're recording. So, but I'm a uh, nothing is terribly exciting about professional development week, but it is the precursor of being able to teach. And that's what I love. And so I'm excited about getting ready to uh, go back and start teaching some philosophy. But that's kind of what's going on in my world. How about you? I have not laid the tombstone yet, but um, <laughs> to continue with your analogy, I guess I, I'm building it. I will be going back on the 11th of August or the 10th. I forget. I think the 10th. That's a little embarrassing. That's as that's as much thought as I've given given about it in a while. But um, summer's almost done for me too. I am still just doing basically the same thing that I've done in all the past episodes. Something exciting coming up is I will be training for my TA thing in a few weeks. So looking forward to that. I'm really excited for that class to start. I still really have no clue what we're doing, but um, that's okay. And I'm actually going to be coming back to, well, I'll be coming back on Zoom in a few weeks to my old, I don't know, I don't know how you'll, you would say this in a fancy way. I'll be coming back to Magnolia on Zoom for a, a lesson with Greek tragedy with Mr. Finley. So I'm, I'm excited about that too. Oh, that's cool. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, we've we've just been talking about that uh, in the past two weeks or so. We, I guess, I guess for people who are listening, they won't know who this random guy is. Um, but he he was my old Eng- English teacher in um, my senior year of high school. Pretty cool guy, and he just went to Greece, and he he was telling me about things from there. So then we started talking about Greek tragedy, and yeah, so that'll be fun. Well, that's right up your alley. Cool. Yeah, it'll be a good time. So is there any indication like how your classes at college will be offered this year? Is it going to be in person or partially Zoom or what? Yeah, so it, at least as of now, it's all going to be back in person. I don't think that will change even with this uh, Delta variant cropping up. I think they took away our mask mandate in the beginning of the summer. I, they haven't changed it yet, but I'm kind of guessing they'll they'll make us wear masks in class. But as long as as long as we're back in class, I think it'll be good. So uh, we're going back fully in person. Thank the Lord. <laughs> well, Andrew, you've had all summer long, so hopefully you've had a little recreational reading time. <laughs> did you did you read anything worthwhile over the summer? Yeah. So so summer's been a good good time for reading. Haven't read too many interesting books, but I will. Well, for me, they've been interesting, but <laughs> I think for, for other people, they might not. So I was tasked from my, I forgot if I've talked about this. I've definitely talked about this with you, but I'm doing this directed study with this professor on Aristotle's ethics next semester. So I'm super excited about that, but he he gave me some summer reading, and one of those was one book on Aristotle. Um, it was just basically a kind of little biography and a little just secondary text. And then probably my favorite book out of all of those, and I'll get back to a more fun book in a minute, was this book by Jacques Barzun. He's this educator from Colombia 
he's a historian, uh, an academic historian. The book that I read is called Simple and Direct. It's like a guide, a rhetorician's guide to writing or something. It's really good. It's the first book that I've ever read on writing, at least in like a very a very technical sense. It's it's extremely technical, but I really enjoyed it. I meant ever really thought about you know, which verbs I should use and he has this really big emphasis on using words <laughs> how they actually mean instead of like their connotation so you get the most direct understanding of them. So I could go more on uh I could geek out on on language, but I think it's really interesting and the like I said, first book I've ever read about that. So if anybody's interested in very precise, extremely, extremely precise writing, I really recommend that. And then more fun. This is not something that I've read this summer, really, but something that I'm going to start today is uh, my favorite book that for all time really is the the Count of Monte Cristo. But the unfortunately, I just found out yesterday that the book that I've been reading like religiously for the past two years was an abridged copy. <laughs> so now I I finally <laughs> have lost my ignorance and have picked up the whole 1200 page book. So anyway, that, that was pretty sad. But how about you, Mr. Parsons? That actually reminds me of when I was a teenager in ninth grade, uh, my English teacher was talking about this book called Les Miserables. I never <laughs> had heard of it, of course, at that point, I was 13 or whatever. And I was just fascinated by the story about the uh, the priest giving the candlesticks to Jean Valjean. And so so I wanted to read this book, right? So I, I ran out to, back in that day, the local mall, and went to Walden Books <laughs> and purchased a copy of Les Miserables. And I read the thing and I loved it. And then years later, I discovered that the 350-page <laughs> version of Les Miserables I read was a very abridged version. That it is, in fact, like 1,200 pages. So, <laughs> so, some similar experience there. Did you still like the book after? Did you ever get around to reading the big one? Yeah, I did read the full 1,200 or how many ever pages book. I actually really got into translations. You know, I wanted a, a, a more modern translation than, than what the standard, yeah. you know, modern library translation would be or whatever. But yeah, I read it. You know, no, well, we're really getting off track here. <laughs> Maybe this is why we cut the segment on books. <laughs> but the the nostalgia that's involved with the first time you read a book that's really meaningful to you. You know, I, I remember when I read Les Miserables the, fir- the first time, the unabridged version, that I thought it was the most beautiful love story that I had, that, that I had ever read, that portion of the book. And rereading it years later as, a, as an adult... You know the the full twelve hundred pages. the The romance didn't strike me quite as <laughs> as hard as maybe it did when I was a passionate young thirteen year old. Uh oh! But I still enjoy it. I mean, it's a great book. Everyone should read it. <laughs> Lovely I've, I've not read that book, but i've I've seen um I've seen the musicals and the movies and really enjoyed it. Not the not the live musicals, but the movie musicals. <laughs> I used to tell people that Jean Valjean was my secular Jesus. <laughs> of course, the character Jean Valjean is a very devout Christian, but but like this dude, you know, he's caught up on all these moral situations, and guy is so steadfast, and I loved it. That's that's really funny, actually. I I don't know. If, have you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo? No, no, I haven't. I feel like. John it's three Musketeers Re- stuff, right? It's it's kind or, of it's like, it's a it's a lot darker. It's um okay. it's a it's a huge revenge story. But that's it's really funny that you're you're saying this. Maybe it's just the situation, or maybe it's because they're the French. But Jean Valjean and Edmond Dantes, or or the Count, are probably very two like very foiled characters. Like they're now that you're talking about it, they this isn't a literary show, I know, but they probably have some. <laughs> They're very diff- different characters. Well, well, today's topic is morality, so this is very good. Continue. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't remember Jean Valjean that much, but I know the the basics of him. He steals bread and thrown in prison, and then for he, he he's a 
pretty good guy for the rest of his life, adopts the girl and whatever. Anyway, Edmund Dantes, he's like, he's a really good young man. He's 19 and then he gets thrown in prison because his his friend is jealous of him and his friend is really rich or whatever. And then anyway, he gets thrown in like the worst prison in France, becomes friends with this priest who teaches him about philosophy, ethics, morality, religion, all of the stuff that we like to talk about. And then he decides the, the priest dies or whatever. He gets a great fortune, blah, 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 blah. And then he takes the rest of his life to taking vengeance on these people who threw him in prison. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Anyway, this is much off track. So <laughs> no, that, that's good. You know, I was I had some books to talk about, but I think I think where we're at since we're discussing morality, it's oh, a no. good it's a good segue <laughs> oh, no. to to <laughs> to our main. I feel bad. <laughs> no, I love talking about Les Miserables. No, it's a good segue for our, our main topic. Uh, I I am currently reading Dune, the great sci-fi classic Dune by by Frank Herbert. But uh, you know what? We'll save my books for next time. I've got, next a, I've got, a, I'm I've sorry, got a good I'm long sorry. list. <laughs> There's nothing bad. to be sorry about. But you know, <laughs> guilt is a part of morality. So here we go. Let's move on to the main main topic of our episode. So for this episode, we're beginning a four-episode arc on the topic of ethics and morality, which is one of the largest branches of philosophy. And so over these next four episodes, we wanted to offer a conception of what morality is and why it matters. And then we wanted to talk about some specific schools of thought, if you will, on morality. So the ones we'll be looking at is utilitarianism by, well, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, although certainly many more have written on that since then. Then we'll look at deontology, which is multi-syllabic way of saying <laughs> duty, right? Duty ethics. And that was uh, established by Immanuel Kant. And then we'll go way back in time to Aristotle and talk about virtue ethics and determining through virtues what is morally right and morally wrong. But for this particular episode, we wanted it to serve as sort of an introduction and talk about some topics that typically come up when people think about ethics and morality Things such as like moral relativism, self-interest theory, you know, selfishness, altruism, and even maybe we might uh, dip our toes into religious ethics and things such as that. But to get us going, you know, I always say ethics and morality. It, they're kind of cousins of each other. But Andrew, I was wondering, you know, and I know you've studied Aristotle quite a lot. In, in your conception, is there a difference between ethics and morality? Yeah, I, that's a good place to start for this series, I guess, that we're, we're starting on. So let me make a little sidetrack that's going to relate to this and, and, and make this question a little easier to answer. So when I think about ethics, or at least the ethics that we're covering, utilitarianism, deontology, and virtue ethics in the next few episodes... I think that's categorized in a subcategory of ethics called normative ethics. And I think that's that's important, right? This distinction that we're kind of making between these two fields and, and ethics as a whole. So normative ethics, I think I'm going to make this very simple, just asking about what you should do. How should I conduct myself in this situation? Or how should an individual or... I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. How should an individual act? So that's how we think of normative ethics. The other two fields, briefly, that I can think of are metaethics, which is asking these big questions that I think we're going to be talking about today. They're pretty important for a good grounding. That's thinking of things like, you know, what is goodness? There are these big foundational questions. And then finally, the only one that I, other one I can really think of feel free to jump in, Mr. Parsons, is applied ethics. I, I've i never really studied this that much. I think this is more of a subcategory in normative ethics, but some people make it out as a whole entirely different category than normative ethics too. This is just thinking about how ethics should be applied into individual situations like policy, 
or medical ethics. I don't know. I, I kind of have a gripe with separating that entirely from normative. But the reason that I wanted to separate meta-ethics from normative ethics is I think it shows a, a difference in in the two and, and kind of how we think of ethics maybe in our traditional way of thinking about it versus how it actually is. So when we think of ethics as maybe how should we act in this situation, right? That's very focused on normative ethics. But at least how I think of ethics as a broad general category, we look at an action in ethics and then we first we ask ourselves, are certain actions better than others? And then we ask ourselves, okay, if certain actions are better than others, then what makes one action better than others? And then when I think of morals, I think morals are a sub-niche. That's not the right word. Barzun would be aggravated with me. I think morals can be confined to the individual almost. Morals are how an individual, how oneself thinks about their own actions. So I think ethics can be seen, at least in my own eyes, ethics is this very broad field that we can use to look at individuals and their actions, not necessarily our own. And then when we think of morals, we're thinking of a very individual basis, like me or Mr. Parsons' morals, how he chooses to use the ethics that he's learned throughout the world and apply them to his own way of living. I think those are good distinctions. When I teach moral philosophy in class, a a lot of what I hear from students, students will say, ethics are something that come from a particular field, expectations within a particular field. You mentioned business ethics. In other words, these are, or medical ethics, these are expectations and rules that are in place for that particular discipline. In other words, what you did academically in this situation was ethically wrong, as if that's being judged against a particular set of expectations within that particular discipline. Say if we're handling something like a situation of academic dishonesty, we'll say you acted ethically wrong. Whereas a student might say morally they did the right thing, right? Like I was trying to help my friend who wanted this, who needed some direction on, on getting their paper started. And they just, they just took what I had and copy and pasted it. So ethically, yes, something wrong was done in terms of in terms of the scope of academic dishonesty or an academic honor code. But the student might argue that morally it was doing something right, and that moral was helping a friend. Now there was no intention, and this gets into deontology. <laughs> there was no intention on the student's part to have the other student take their work. So we get into these gray areas of like morality, kind of like you said, is a very sort of personal thing. Whereas ethics, you know, you get into medical ethics, you know, or research ethics and like, well, this is, this is not something that's acceptable within research ethics. And, and I think some people view that as possibly a little bit different than a sort of personal morality. So I think the distinctions you make were, uh, were good. So also a lot of something that I hear frequently from students and this is why when people are like, do you teach moral philosophy? I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> only when I have to. <laughs> is that the frequent argument I get from students is that there is no such thing as ethics and morality. It's all relative, right? Uh, moral relativism. So let's talk about moral relativism. And uh, Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> can I start off? Can I start off with some questions to to ask you and the audience? Sure, sure. Please. You don't necessarily have to answer these. Can be these could be rhetorical. Sure. In terms of moral relativism, students often say, like, well, you know, every culture has their way of doing things, and so, you know, we have to respect that, and that that's how they do it. And you know, for them, this is morally right or wrong. So, but I have kind of a litmus test for that. In terms of like, you know, what are you comfortable with? So, so let me like throw some questions at you that of, of increasing moral questionableness. 
Uh, here we go. Uh, first one is is pretty easy. You know, if another culture says that they do not eat pork, are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And most people are like sure. I mean, it's a dietary decision, right? No big deal. They don't eat pork, so what? Yeah. Okay. Next one. Are you okay if a culture practices polygamy? Yeah, that's okay with me. It's not hurting me. Ah, it's not hurting you. Now, that's an interesting take on on ethics and morality, which we will surely get to uh, at some point in this four-episode arc. Okay, uh, next one. Are you okay if a culture practices female circumcision? <laughs> I think you... Um I'm starting to remember this. I think you you, you use these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I might have. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's where it starts getting a little shady too. Now, why does that get? Why is that shadier than say polygamy? <laughs> well, I think that. Hmm. And you don't necessarily have to answer. <laughs> well, but well, I'm sure people. I'm sure listeners are wrestling with 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 the same thing that you are at this very moment trying to answer that question because i'm sure most people are like yeah that's that's different than polygamy and certainly different than like some dietary idea of like sure. pork well i think the, the obvious thing that sticks out to me is there's a choice probably a choice involved i don't if if say like a a woman wanted to be circumcised you know that seems to be her choice but if it's um what's the right word if it's imposed on them without their their free free will, then then that starts to be where it's also yeah their consent right right yeah. But you could also say the same thing about polygamy, and and and, and those types of things that are baked into a culture, right? It's just like oh yeah, uh, multiple marriage partners. That's just what we do. Uh, it's not something that's questioned. Same with circumcision, and then of course we could go to my most extreme example and that's uh you know if a culture stones to death adulterers yeah or um ah so so my point in asking those questions is that it's it's an attempt to try to debunk the idea that morals are just relative to a culture yes every culture sort of has things that are unique to their culture in terms of beliefs and morality but at some point, you know, there are aspects of morality in different cultures that just strikes a person as as being really wrong. And while the people who are in the culture that stones adulterers to death might not feel that, there is something behind this notion that we feel that it's just wrong. And and we'll get into it here in a bit, but but that kind of goes to what's called an intuitive argument that intuitively we just know that like murdering someone for the actions that they take is wrong. So I guess we'll say as disclaimer here now, uh, when we talk about morality, this is why I hate teaching it in class. <laughs> we're we're going to get into some probably very uncomfortable <laughs> positions and some statements might be made. Uh, about cultures and identity and all these types of things that we are wanting to talk about the idea of and do our best to separate our personal uh, feelings about that. So when we talk about different cultures, and this is why moral relativism is 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 a thing, is that when we talk about different cultures, we do want to be sensitive to uh, their belief systems, right? Uh, certainly, as we would hope, people are sympathetic to to ours. I think that's a good disclaimer to say because I was, I was about to hop hop in in a minute ago, but I was um, holding myself back, I guess. So I think the ex- examples that you you were giving were you could even maybe hop out of those, but I think if we take it to such an extreme, like if if we we're going back to the culture of of like uh, America and like the 1700s, right? Like there was this culture of accepted slavery, right? Today we would be in shock if we saw some of the things that were occurring then. Like, of course, you know, or probably most people would at least. And I mean, I think we can look around the world and see others, other examples of this in in different cultures and different societies. And today we're going to be like, yeah, I mean, there there's no way we can say that slavery or other practices are good. There's no way someone could make a 
compelling argument for saying that's right. And I think that's where, although I think moral relativity, at least in the modern philosophers I've read, is strongest in where, where they bring it to the cultural practice. I, let, let me see the, I had the name over here. The, the most common type of moral relativism is descriptive moral relativism today. And that's where they do take it to these cultural relativist uh, positions. But I do think that there's, there, there are not too many philosophers. This is not a great argument, but it, it isn't something important to note. There are not too many philosophers nowadays that I can think of that are purely moral relativists. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think we will get into that. So as a side question, why do you think in our particular time that so many people do think that moral relativism is the answer, if you will, to, to, moral, to morality? I can think of two. I'll give the more philosophical one first. We've come after the end of World War II with literature and philosophy. We've entered this postmodern stage where we're seeing truth is very subjective, or individuals are. I, many philosophers don't, and there's a good reason for that for a future episode. But a lot of we have this just idea in our head that truth is subjective for some reason, and that's just a very popular notion, and that carries extremely easily with moral relativism. And then I also think that coupled with a more globalized world where we've seen that maybe in the past we've treated some cultures incorrectly uh, in, in some ways and we've dismissed them, we're, we're kind of being careful in that regard. And I think when we mix these two together, it just springs off this idea that we should be culturally relative, um, even if that is not a, a sound way of viewing morality. So those are, those are, I think, are some very, very good points when you consider many of the literary and intellectual movements that occurred post-World War II or during World War II, post-World War II. Whether people are aware of those movements or not, they've informed our society's basic understanding. And so one of the things I, I want to bring up, you know, if you talk about arguments for moral relativism, you mentioned how globally we're more aware of, of cultures than we ever have been before and we're exposed to those more than we ever have been before. One argument for moral relativism is exactly that. It's called the diversity argument. It states that the sheer variety of moral practices suggests that there are no objective moral values. And, and that's kind of one of the things that makes talking about morality different than, I don't know, free will or something, you know, in philosophy is that we're kind of putting ourselves in the seat of judgment with others. You know, if we're looking at a culture, we're saying, yeah, we think that's right or that's wrong, or we're looking at a person and their behavior, like that's right or that's wrong. We're judging that person. We might want to say, well, we're just judging their actions, but you know, we're judging that person. We're judging that culture. And that's what makes moral philosophy a bit uncomfortable from time to time. But this is, uh, this is the diversity argument, right? Uh, the sheer variety of moral practices across the globe suggests that there are no objective moral values. So whether that's something like dietary or marriage or burial, how cultures handle the end of life, or if it's something like slavery or burning widows on their husband's funeral pyre or killing unproductive members of societies, you know, the darker side of diversity argument, that's what the diversity argument posits. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very appealing when, when you first hear it, right? Like, there's a reason that I don't like, I don't really have any experience of how other generations are, so I don't know, but I think that this argument's very appealing in my generation. I don't, I'm MIZ or X or, I don't know. I think I'm Generation Z, but, or, or millennial or whatever, but, I think it's very appealing in like this this context. I don't think it really has much foundation because kind of like we've said, like I think when we do compare cultural elements, it's clear that there's at least one that's wrong. So we can say like if we look to the practice of burning um, widows when their husband died or killing unproductive members of society, those are wrong. 
I can, I can pretty confidently say that's pretty abysmal. And so we've identified one, one thing is being wrong. This one practice that we can agree on is being wrong. So then it stops to be relative in my mind. There is a facet of morality that is objective. And even if we identify this one and there seems kind of like this non-contradiction principle at play, right? Something can't be relative and not relative at the same time. Yeah, I remember one time in class, this was some years ago, we were talking about morality and the Holocaust. And, you know, a, a student said that it's very possible that since the Nazis believed, the ones who were participating in the Holocaust, since the Nazis believed that, that that action was morally right, then for them it was. And that's moral relativism. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but that's wrong. <laughs> you know, there, there's nothing right about yeah, no. genocide. E- even though a culture may view that as right from a objective standpoint, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm no. quite fine with saying I, I agree with you, and wrong. I don't. I think that if if someone didn't agree <laughs> with you, I think I think they would definitely be in the minority um, of, of of believers in that. And yeah, I I don't know if we we went around on the street and asked people that. I don't know if one person would say, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, this is one of my problems with moral philosophy. We always do get into these like extreme cases, right? Let's hope that something like the Holocaust is not yeah. a normal scenario. Okay, so. You know, one of the difficulties with moral relativism is that, like, say I just did with the Holocaust, I come strong and say, like, yeah, that's totally wrong. Like, in no no universe is that right. There comes a sort of moral superiority that comes along with that. And certainly in less morally extreme situations, that that can come off very wrong. And we know that there are a great many people who feel that they are morally superior, morally right in their belief systems. We can pick anything from politics. And this is uh, one of the difficulties, you know, I have is like when we get to those types of scenarios, you know, how do we, how do we have a, you know, a discussion about something in a way that's productive, that doesn't reduce down to right or wrong, where we're eventually looking at the other person saying that, yeah, that's wrong. Well, I, th- I think that's something that we can use as a litmus test on our, our ethical theories that we're going to be looking in the next few episodes. One other argument for moral relativism is what some people call the lack of foundation argument. We will see this in play in the now reflecting back on some of the examples we've talked about. The more lack of foundation argument just simply states that there does not exist an independent moral reality against which we can test our values to see if they are true or false. It's like, where is it written in stone? Like, I often make comparisons of like, say, your cholesterol level, right? Like you go to the doctor and they're checking your cholesterol. Well, there's a chart, right, with numbers on it. And if your number is above this or below it, then you've got problems. But if your number's in the sweet spot of cholesterol, you're just fine. So, you know, the doctor gets a number and they put it against the chart and they're like, oh, yep, you have high cholesterol. Like there's something against which you can measure your cholesterol number. Whereas the lack of foundation argument says, yeah, there's no independent moral reality. There's no chart that we can test our moral choices against. So that's the other argument with arguments for moral relativism. A couple of arguments against moral relativism, and again, we've alluded to this in one way or another, we're just putting a name to it now. One is called the core values argument. And the coral value, <laughs> coral, the, the core value argument states that there are some core values accepted by all cultures. It might look different from culture to culture, but when you get down to it, and we might call these virtues for us Aristotelians in the room. You know, every society has some kind of rules that limit things like violence, protection of property, that promote things like honesty, virtues like honesty. Again, that might look very different from culture to culture and how those are employed. But at the base level, these virtues exist. These, these moral values exist. And then last but not least, and I mentioned it earlier, it's what's sometimes called the intuitive 
argument where like if we see someone abusing a child physically abusing a child like you know we don't have to set back and and make moral arguments as to why that's wrong we just know that's wrong beating a child there's something within us we're like yeah that's wrong and that's called the uh, the in, the intuitive argument you can make lots of arguments from an evolutionary standpoint as to why that's not true etc cetera, etc cetera. but i do think there is something something at some level to the intuitive argument so anyway that's just very quickly the the remaining arguments that surround moral relativism i yeah i think i think there are they're all pretty good arguments i think moral relativism is very interesting so if you're interested in learning more about that you should email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com for some book recommendations which we will be happy to provide or some paper recommendations i like that plug <laughs> <laughs> so the next theory we want to talk about is what is sometimes called self-interest theory in other words do we do things because from a selfish standpoint makes us feel good and we call that morality so andrew question is it human nature to be selfish or generous or another word we would use is altruistic sure that's a really good question, and I think that I remember having this discussion many times with people. I think I've taken both sides. I, b- I believe both sides. There's the two sides are every action that we make is for a selfish reason. Everything from opening the door for someone because you get this kind of good feeling in your stomach or your head or where, wherever you're feeling it, or even if you're Uh, loving your child because uh, they'll grow up and take care of you hopefully one day when you can't. And then the other side, of course, is no, we do things for love and and generosity and such. This question, I think that I finally come to a standstill on it. I don't know if we're supposed to be answering these questions or not, but I'll I'll, I'll kick the can and then I'll kick it back to you, uh, Mr. Parsons, see what your thoughts are. So, and of course, this, this idea of is it possible to be unselfish in the interest of others is altruism, which is what my handy-dandy Merriam-Webster dictionary told me was the definition. So can we be altruistic? And I think, I think the answer is yes. I think that the only reason that we think no is because we, we have this definition of selfish to mean something that we do entirely or we do for ourselves. I think that that's what we think of when we think of being selfish, doing something just for ourselves. And I think, you know, that's that's true. That is that is true, of course, what the definition is, but I think that we're forgetting something very important in the definition, which is doing something entirely for myself. Where something like unselfishness would be not having a entire interest in the welfare of others think the word entire is important, right? So even if we do make this claim that when I hold the door open for someone, I do get this rush of feeling, good feeling with it, and that's partially the reason why I do it, maybe unconsciously at that, you are still having an interest in the welfare of someone else. You're making their life easier, even if you are getting something in return for it. And this is a great deal of virtue ethics too. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but it's something that Aristotle thinks a lot about too. So what I'm trying to boil this down to is even if I'm getting something in return, having some positive that I'm unconscious about that could benefit me from helping someone else while I'm being altruistic, my interest consciously is doing something for others. I'm having someone's I'm being empathetic for someone else's life and I'm taking interest in that and trying to make it better. And I think that's where I'm standing on this self-interest theory. Anyway, long story short, Mr. Parsons, what do you think? No, I think that's good. I mean, I have that written down as well. It, it comes down to definitions, right? How we define selfishness, how we define altruism. Yeah, absolutely. Just because you do something that you gain pleasure out of doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it for selfish reasons, right? I mean, this is one of the great allures for someone who enjoys volunteer work. You know, you, you talk to anyone, it's always eye-opening for teenagers yeah. when they go out and like really serve someone who is who is underserved. 
right? Whether that's homeless or a soup kitchen or something. And they just get this tremendous feeling of, of goodness that they've done something really good. <laughs> it feels good, but you know, they're, they're not doing it. I mean, sure. Is there a part of them? They're like, yes, I want to do more volunteer because it makes me feel so good. What are we going to call that selfish? No, because when we call something selfish, that has a connotation of like of negativity associated with it. Whereas certainly someone who's helping people at a soup kitchen, where's the negativity in that? So yeah, absolutely. Just because you get pleasure out of it doesn't mean that you're doing it for selfish reasons. You know, there, there's another argument that kind of goes uh, along with that as well. It's, it's sometimes called the evolutionary argument. It's that in order for our species to survive this evolutionary struggle, we're programmed to pursue our own interests. That's selfishness, right? And so, so yeah, I, I have my issues with evolutionary <laughs> arguments. So we'll save that for another time. I could really go strong on that. But, um, <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, uh, other people's interests concern us only so far as the extent that, that they affect our own, which is the survival of our species. And so, like, why do we help at the soup kitchen? Well, it's because it helps perpetuate the species. <laughs> um, and so I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we can probably save a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, we could probably do a whole episode. I'm not saying it's a good argument. And, <laughs> I don't know. I think like. I think all of these arguments, like we're talking about moral relativism, self-interest theory, the evolutionary theory, I think on the surface, they're all very, very compelling. At least when I th thought of them when I was fresh young person thinking about philosophy. But I think, at least personally for me, I I don't know. I think if, if you delve a little deeper, maybe it's just because the literature is just so overwhelming I think they're very compelling at the surface level, but not much after that. Mr. Parsons, I, I have a, a question for you. You know, I have to, as, as tradition dictates once an episode, I have to refer to the ancients. So I guess this is it for, for the episode. But um, in, in my skimming of the Republic that I've been doing, um, there's this very famous story of the Ring of Gyges where an individual Glaucon puts on, no, it's not Glaucon. I think he's the person telling it, but someone puts on a, it's this thought experiment by Plato's brother Glaucon, where he puts on this ring and he can turn invisible. Sounds a little like the Lord of the Rings, but he can put on this ring and he can turn invisible and do whatever he wants. He can murder, pillage, rape, do basically anything with that he wants any vile action without any consequence and he can get away with it and no one will know what he's doing. So not only can he commit these actions without, without being caught, which is certainly seems appealing. <laughs> I shouldn't say that it was certainly appealing for Glaucon and even more appealing for him was that society would never know that he was committing these bad acts. So he was also seeing that everyone was still thinking he was good. So Two questions for you, Mr. Parsons. What do you think about that? And then just maybe a little bit for fun, how, how would you use the ring? <laughs> okay, I like the second one. Well, yeah, this first one, the ring of Gyges is a great one to, to talk about. There is this, uh, you know, another assumption in society a lot of people make is that the only reason that we are moral creatures, that we do morally good things, is because there are punishment systems put into place. So whether we think of that in terms of like, Driving down the road and speeding, well, maybe we're less prone to speed because we know we might get pulled over or anything, you know, rules within uh, the school that you go to or, or the business that you work for. It's that these rules are in place and there are punishments associated. And if all of those punishments were gone, well, humanity would just descend into, uh, into hedonistic chaos and, uh, <laughs> and all morality would go out the window. Well, it's an interesting argument. And like you said, a lot of these arguments, like at their surface level, you're like, well, yeah, of course we need law and order. And we do need law and order. That's that's actually another moral, right? Uh, the idea of, of protecting people's property and rights. But like if you took all of those away, you know, what would happen to society? Well, it's one of those arguments. It's like, well, that, that's a that's a fun thought experiment. But like that in what society are we going to like get rid of all the rules? You know, it's in the purge, you know, like <laughs> I've never seen the purge. I think that's the premise of it. Yeah, I haven't either, but I think you're right. Uh, but, 
But, uh, you know, there, there's not a society where we're ever going to get rid of all rules and consequences. So it's an interesting thought experiment, but that's why I think it's kind of a useless thought experiment. But it does certainly speak to human nature. And I think a lot of us probably would do some things that maybe, maybe we wouldn't do that we might consider, or rather others might consider morally wrong. And we might even consider it morally wrong, but like the pleasure factor, you know, overrides that, you know, so we think, and, and maybe, <laughs> you know, whatever that is, whether it's something, I don't want to say small, but like small, like, you know, illegally downloading a song, you know, versus something far worse. And we'll let people's imaginations run with that. I, I don't know what the answer is because I don't think that we can, we can ever truly judge that people might say there's examples of that in society. But, you know, you can't take a handful of examples and apply it to 7 billion people. What would you do? What would you do with it? What would I do with it? Oh, man. You know, I'd I'd love to say like, oh, I'd I'd, uh, steal from the rich and feed the poor. (laughs) You know, I'd I'd take Jeff Bezos's rocket ship money and (laughs) and steal all of it and go Robin Hood and, and help out the masses that could benefit from that same amount of money. Who knows? Maybe I would do that. A very apologies to uh, Mr. Bezos, who I'm sure has worked very hard for his fortune. But <laughs> uh, I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably skip work a day or two. <laughs> 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 yeah. Or maybe I'd, maybe I'd sneak on an airplane and take that's, a fabulous European vacation that's exactly, or something. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's ex- exactly what I was thinking with the plane. I think I'd sneak on a plane and go somewhere fun. Yeah, you know, when when I was in Copenhagen, uh, one of the parts of the Kierkegaard library is that they have thousands of pages of his original manuscripts <laughs> that, of course, uh, I, I did not have access to. So, you know, maybe I'd sneak into the Kierkegaard's <laughs> library and look at those look at those documents. I would wear gloves, you know, out of respect. <laughs> I don't want to soil the documents with my oils. Ooh, that's gross sounding. Never mind. <laughs> I guess I'd put on the ring and like take that comment, last comment back. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'd just go on a trip, a free trip. <laughs> that's so sinister. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> just as Socrates keeps his answer for the Ring of Gyges problem, I will wait for my answer to the Ring of Gyges until a later episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh man you know the problem with the ring of gaijis is that like maybe it can hide your behavior but it can't change you as a person yes yes like if i want to be cooler i can't use the ring to make me cooler (laughs) that's funny i'm just just dorky old mr parsons (laughs) (laughs) making bad jokes (laughs) oh man all right religious ethics we have one last topic for you guys today before we go to the quote quarter and that's uh, that's an argument from a religious standpoint that like hey wouldn't it be nice if we just had an authoritative rule book which told us what moral principles to follow and of course so for billions of religious adherents across the globe that is exactly what religion provides now andrew and i are both religious but we're certainly not here to speak against religious morality but I, I kind of think like if you throw the word religious in front of morality, uh, you're, you're still just kind of talking about the same thing. I don't know. What, what's your <laughs> thoughts on this, Andrew? I have I have two thoughts. One of them, I think, I'm, don't quote me on this, but I think I'm stealing from your, your class, but it stuck with me. I think like if we're thinking about religion as like just this coded, coded book of morality, it, it kind of is self-defeating, right? If religion is just morality and we're just looking at religion for this book of ethics and that's the only reason why we're believing in it, it seems like it's taking kind of a big part of the religion out. Now, I'm not saying that religion can't be morality. I mean, I think, of course, certainly it is, right? Like, But I think religion is more than just morality. And I think that personally, I think that when you confuse the two i guess it's it's taking a little out and i i do think that's probably incorrect i secondly i think this is something that's appealing to me this i'm turning back around and shooting myself in the foot by saying this but there there is a sense of religion as an ethical system that is appealing to me as well inside of it i mean this is something that religious philosophers islamic philosophers 
especially Catholic philosophers. I'm not an expert in, I don't know a thing about Protestant philosophy and religion. So you can, can fix me <laughs> uh, if I'm wrong. But I know like certainly like these, this was a real problem for Catholic doctors of the church in the philosophical sense. Like I think Augustine, he definitely was concerned with this, taking Plato's ethics and making them compatible. And especially St. Thomas Aquinas, he was very, very much thinking about how Aristotelian ethics, which seemed true to him, could be realized in Catholicism. And I think that, well, this is this shouldn't be like a religious ending. So Martin Luther, I was reading one of his, his papers or something the other day in a secondary source, of course, but I think he, like one of his reasons for his split um, was he, he was calling the Catholic church, the Aristotelian church. So I thought that was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) So to your point, I think the thing that is attractive to religious adherents in terms of morality is that there is an aspect of authority behind that. One of the big questions, and we'll address this in the next three episodes. One of the big questions about morality is, well, who says Right. You know, we say like, oh, this this action is morally good. Well, who says? Where's the where's the authority behind that? And so for religious adherents, the authority is God. And and that's why it's attractive. But to reach back into antiquity one last time, uh, we will reference Plato once again here. In his dialogue, the Euthyphro, he presents to this person that he's having a conversation with, which is Euthyphro. He presents this argument to him in terms of authority and God. And I won't go into what the dialogue involves uh, and why they're having this conversation, but here it is. Is something good because God says it is good, or does God say that it is good because it is good? On the one hand, if something is good simply because God says it's good, then if God suddenly decided that murder was good, well, it would be good. Most people would reject this conclusion. On the other hand, If God says something is good because it is good, then it seems that values are independent of God, and we do not need God in order to justify them. This is a real uh, dilemma here, a real logical dilemma. And my approach when it comes to, you know, religious ethics as justification, you know, we do have some issues of things like like the spirit of the text versus the the letter of the moral code you know we have to use very fancy word hermeneutics to interpret 2000 year old texts in in a new new context in our current context and and that brings us some difficulties letter of the law versus spirit of the law essentially what i often come down to when it comes to religious ethics is that and this is a big word so i use it hesitantly i'm going to say almost all i don't want to use the word all Almost all religions, when it comes to ethics and morality, are pretty close in line. When you boil it down to like, like when you reduce all their ethical and moral precepts, when you reduce them down to their basic core, we have a lot of commonality across religions. In other words, it's treat people with care, right? It's, uh, you know, doing unto others. The golden rule we see in multiple civilizations. And so... It's not that God is there necessarily to justify those things. And, and it's not that these moral precepts necessarily just exist out there in the universe. I don't know. In a way, it seems like God is good because he is good. And that's because some things are good in and of themselves. And so a lot of the virtues that we associate with religious practices are in themselves good. Now, can we get into like specifics of things like, you know, oh, divorce or you know, how a person should dress and stuff like that. Yeah, that gets messy. But like, like when you, when you boil those moral precepts down, a lot of them across religions are very much the same. So that's kind of where I land on religious ethics. I think that's a good place to end it. You, you said everything that I was going to say. So, oh man, it was, uh, <laughs> what can I say? You're welcome. <laughs> Well, okay, well, let's just wrap this up then for morality. Uh, folks, we, you know, hopefully we've brought some things up today that, that make you think and have interested you in perhaps uh, some future episodes because in the next three episodes, 
you know, when we talk about the issue of authority with morality, we've had a lot of philosophers over the ages attempt to answer that uh, within a religious context and without uh, outside of religious context to create moral systems that can help us guide us in our lives. And so, so the next three episodes, we're going to look at those. And these systems might help inform some of your decisions that you made about some of our hypothetical questions thrown out there to you today. But we'll leave it there for now and head on over to the Quote Corner. Welcome to the Quote Corner. This week, it is my, not my quote, but one of my quotes that I have picked. It's, I tried to pick one that was kind of on the topic of morality. Last week, we had a super fun one about soccer. I figured we should get back on track with a more serious one. And who's more serious than Seneca the Younger? So <laughs> the quote today <laughs> is a pretty fun one, I think. Um, I'm excited to hear everybody's thoughts about it. So the quote is, virtue is nothing else than right reason. Very stoic. And of course, once again, this is by Seneca the Younger. Mr. Parsons, what do you think about it? Well, you know, I love some stoicism. And I hope my bias doesn't show through for future episodes, but I I feel like virtue ethics is probably the best of the ethical systems that that we can come up with. And so, of course, this this speaks to me. Now, we do have one of the things we sometimes criticize about quotes on the show is is the use of an all-encompassing word or phrase. And Seneca does this here. He says, virtue is nothing else than right reason, which is basically the, the word all, right? And, and we often criticize that. And, and I guess I'll criticize it here because that's just what we do. Maybe virtue is something else than right reason. But I don't know what that would be, frankly. The beauty behind reason is that it can clarify, moves, uh, get rid of some of the fog that's in the way of in our decision making. And so, I don't know, with all my reading in the last couple of years with virtue ethics and with stoicism, I don't know. This makes a lot of sense to me. I'm sure you feel the same way. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I think I think I'm going to throw in a little curveball from listeners' oh, expectations. Right. So, this is partly because of I think me very very nitpicking. So, at least in the way that I understand it, I'm I'm not fluent in ancient Greek, but maybe that will change one day. At least how I understand virtue is it's it's a word that means excellence. We'll talk about this in future episodes, but Aristotle differentiates between virtues of character and I think intellectual virtues. And I think those both, those can definitely be influenced by reason, especially character virtues, which I know 100% Seneca is talking about. Me, me, me doing this is, is not taking his words in the best possible light. Well, it is, but also it's, it's not. So, when I see virtue is nothing else than right reason, it's like, hmm, uh, let me think about, this is super nitpicky, but if I think about like the virtues of a coffee mug or a, of a coffee maker, I don't think it's it's right reason in that sense. Now, if you would have put human virtues or human character virtues, I'd I'd be perfectly content with it. And me, me, me going off on this odd tangent is a little mean. So because of that, I, I really do like the quote other than that. I think virtues, character virtues are 100% right reason. We'll talk about this in the virtue ethics arc, but I think that all of your virtues, dependent independent of whether you've ever learned about them or not, can be established by your reason. Um, so I think he's right in this, but I just wish he would have included human virtues. But anyway, that's a very nitpicky. So I'm going to give him a four. What, what do you think, Mr. Parsons? Oh, I'm very surprised by your four, actually. <laughs> well, I'm giving a 4.5. <laughs> yes. That's pretty good. That's, That's pretty, pretty good. good. You know, we should someday really sit down and think about our our system that we I know. create stars with. But then that takes away the, the silly arbitrariness I of know. the arbitrary <laughs> nature of it. Our, our, uh, our relativity of the uh, quote corner. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's all relative, man. But it's not. <laughs> we'll end on that. <laughs> ¶¶
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today, spending your valuable time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. We'd really love it if you would leave us a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when new episodes drop. Those episodes, unfortunately, don't drop relatively, (laughs) so you should check those out. And if you feel like it, pass it along to your friends so they might live a more moral or, or ethical life. Oh, I'd say passing it on to your friends is the moral action. <laughs> yes, that is the, the right moral action. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, email us. Tell us what you think about the show at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to send us a quote for us to rate uh, or have many questions about all this morality we're talking about. Yeah, go ahead and email us. That'd be great. You can also follow all the philosophy on Twitter, Instagram, and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com, where you can find many things about the show, including our book list, which we mentioned today. We'd like to be morally right by thanking Kevin McLeod for the use of his music in the intro and outro. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. <laughs>